Henry Blackaby, in his book, Experiencing God, has touched the lives of millions of people, and we'll talk about that in the interview. But he really is a man who walks away and leaves you thinking about what he said. Mm. I, I think when I get to heaven, I don't know if we'll ask God questions or not. But the first question I'm going to ask him is, how come I wasn't smarter? (laughs) (laughs) Because I really would like, my life could have been so much easier if I'd just been smarter. Henry Blackaby won't have to ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't one of those three in the studio, so I'm looking forward to hearing this uh, conversation. You've definitely whetted my appetite for his uh, intelligence. Let's go ahead and uh, listen. I'm certainly glad to be with you. Thanks, Dr. Blackaby. I remember so well the day you spoke in chapel here at Focus on the Family and how God used you in such a special way. So many of our listeners, uh, so many of those who participate in the Pastor to Pastor series will recognize your name, especially from your book, Experiencing God, which in many ways is a workbook, isn't it? It is, though we've done it in a trade book. It primarily, in its largest use, is the workbook. I've seen the trade book, and it's beautifully bound and and done. I, I would really recommend that to the pastors as well for their library, but what kind of feedback have you gotten from your readers on experiencing God? Well, it's, it's sort of overwhelmed us completely. They, as of the other day, about 2,200,000 copies. And uh, we're hearing from governors who said it was while they were going through experiencing God, God guided them, and judges and lawyers and college students got a group of CEOs uh, who've been through experiencing God from the Fortune 500, and and they're saying it's affected their life profoundly, and the prisons, uh, just incredibly from the prisoners in the prison system and uh, major groups across all denominations, from the, well, just all groups and pastors and leaders. and Primarily, they're saying for the first time we're sensing how to know when God is speaking and our Lord is now more real to them than they'd ever known. I've, I've talked with a college student who said, thank you for saving my life. And she was on the way to commit suicide and dropped into a group, and her whole life was changed. Marriages have been healed, and lives have been healed, and families brought back together. It's sort of overwhelming to see what God has done when they found a very simple way of knowing how to know and experience God. Well, I'm sure you had high hopes for the book, but probably nothing to the measure of what it has achieved. I understand from the people who work with Christian publishers that if a book sells 7,000 copies, that puts it on the average or above. And to think that this workbook of yours has exceeded 2 million must mean somewhere along the way that you feel God has touched a nerve not only in your life and and the co-authors, but also in the hearts and lives of people who pick it up. There's no question that God has simply sovereignly chosen to use it because many others have put out very exciting discipleship books, and it sort of caught us by surprise, and we're trying to adjust to it. Mm -hmm. And in the six years, there's been 40 languages that it's been Mm -hmm. translated into besides all of this, and, and, and we're hearing some incredible stories from around the world. So... I think it's something only God could have done. And we're very, very humbled by what we're seeing. When you spoke in chapel, uh, I know all of us present felt the presence and the power of God that day and and his hand on your shoulders. And as you spoke, when that happens with a speaker, when, when the anointing of God comes upon one's life, 
normally we would think it's because that speaker has committed a lot of time and prayer and communion with the Lord before he gets up to speak. And I, I don't want to become too personal, but how do you go about these speaking times and standing up before crowds of people, great and small? How about your own quiet time with God? How do, how do you structure it? Well, I, I certainly don't structure it rigidly, uh, but it is structured. And uh, a, a one basic factor in my life is that I will never find myself hurried with God. I can be hurried with other things, but I will not hurry my time in the presence of Almighty God. So I back my time up, and I usually start my time alone with God around 4 o'clock. That will then continue until God's through with me. In other words, I don't have a set time and tell God I've got 30 minutes. I always leave at an open-ended time, and sometimes it'll go from three to four hours. And it seems, just seems like uh, no time at all. And during that time, Dr. Blackaby, is it a, because you don't structure it, there would be some times when you would spend the majority of that time reading, others a lot of that time in prayer, a combination of both, or just listening I usually to the start, Lord? I usually start asking the Lord to guide me with a readiness of heart, and then I'd spend time in his word, and I'm usually in one of the Gospels uh-huh. because I want to know the person of the Lord Jesus because that was God's plan, was to put his son in me. And then I stop regularly whenever I know that the Spirit of God has brought me face to face with something about my Lord. I stop immediately and begin to respond in prayer, and I write in a notebook what it is that God said, how I responded. Was there a vow or a commitment I made to God? I write it down, uh, and then I continue talking with the Lord and and uh, listening to the Lord. It's a time where he adjusts me to what he's up to and what he's doing. But then that continues all day long. Uh, the quiet time simply alerts me to what God's about to do that day. So all during the day and then at times through the night. So it's really a relationship with God. But we think of quiet time as a very structured, specific time. Well, I do, but that sort of initiates the rest of the day. The intent of this edition of Pastor to Pastor is to is to concentrate on the whole matter of, of knowing God. And as I as I listen to you share your own testimony, your own walk, it would seem to me that this early morning time is what creates within your heart this awesome awareness of the presence of God. And, and like the song would say, he's new, he's fresh every morning. Is, is that the way it is for you? Well, he's the same every morning, but he renews whole new dimensions of himself. It's a fresh revealing of himself and his ways. And it usually relates to the last thing I knew or was doing or the last response I had or what he's immediately purposing to do in my life. It's not for a devotional thought, but a relationship. So every morning there's something new. He's either going to continue from the last thing he said or he's about to initiate something that is very fresh and new. No encounter with God is ever the same, and it is always very, very exciting. When you think about getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, that probably, to most of the people listening to us, seems very foreign and even far-fetched. How was that discipline determined in your life? Well, I sought God 
not that I might know him, but because I knew him. Uh, it's like my wife. The reason I desire time with her is not because I don't know her, but because I do. And I just began to meet, say, at 7.30, and I found that that wasn't enough. And so I just determined that I would continue to back up my time until I was unhurried. And it went, say, from 7 to 6.30 to 6 to 5.30 to 5. And I found that when I was meeting with the Lord, at the point where I was unhurried is the point when I got up. And if I found that that was now not enough, I'd back it up again. But it, it was sort of not a, a formalized thing as much as a deep heart desire just to have an unhurried time with him. And that's what I've heard you say over and over so far in our in our time together, that your time with the Lord is unhurried. Yes. That it is, it is open-ended. Yeah. And which makes it pretty much God's agenda and God's time as well. Yeah, see, he's God. And I treat him like God. And many times we treat him as though he's our servant. And I have an awesome sense of trembling when I come into the presence of God. And I wouldn't dare tell the God of the universe what schedule I'm on. There probably are pastors listening who have no conception of what you're saying. But a lot of them probably feel somewhat distanced from God, even as we're speaking to them. What do you recommend for them? The first thing I would say is spend time with God and certainly in his word to ask the Lord, why do I feel this way? Because God hasn't moved. And usually when I read the scripture, the spirit of God connects me with what it is in my relationship to God that has uh, separated between me and the Lord. Mm -hmm. He has not moved, but there's something in me that's come between me and him. So I'd recommend to a pastor, don't ever let that continue. I'd say two things. One, don't let your feeling determine your time with God. And second, don't let that feeling distance from God remain. But that's the time to spend time with God and extraordinary times with God in his word and in quietness, listening, and then responding to God uh, until the intimacy with the Lord has returned. I would never let it continue without earnestly uh, relating to the Lord. And Dr. Blackaby, I would imagine you would say whatever else you have on the burner, it's secondary to moving yourself to where God is. Oh, absolutely, because he determines so much of my life. Matter of fact, both Old and New Testament, God says, I am your life. And there is nothing that affects more of my life and my marriage and my family and my ministry and my day. There's nothing that affects any more of that than, than God. So if that is true, then there's nothing that should ever take precedence over that. Why would you think, now I know I'm putting you on the spot here, why would you think that any man called of God that lives under the stress and pressure that the average pastor in America lives under, would allow himself to become distanced from God? Well, I think we we turn to activity, and usually the stress is out of activity. And uh, I think a person has got to love the Lord with all of his mind as well as all of his strength. And uh, a person is not thinking. If he lets that distance him from God, he is 
caught up in activity, maybe success, and it creeps in and we can rationalize it to say, I'm doing this for his glory. And so we continue in that direction. But the essence of a walk with God is the intimacy with God. And I think he just needs to set his heart to say, I will not let any stress so burden me that I just don't have any heart to meet with God. In your book, you have a chapter called Continuing Fellowship with God, where you share four examples of Scripture which refer to God basically hiding his face, which seems like a scary thing to me. When you summarize that, it seemed to make sense as I think back upon what I read to think of God hiding his face from me, from the church, from the world, from any of us is just a, a very perplexing thought that he would take his eyes of off, off of us for a moment. Could you enlarge on that just a bit? Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those expressions that is used, especially in the Old Testament, but it is also in the others, which simply means God will not continue to express his blessing upon my life as long as sin remains. And it is it is always the sin of God's people collectively or personally that elicits that God will hide his face from me, meaning when his face is toward me, then his blessing is flowing into my life. And he uses the expression, I'll turn my face from you, meaning I will not continue the blessing because if I do, I'll confirm you in your sin. Yeah. I can't do that because if you're confirmed in your sin, it's going to hurt you ultimately and tragically and love will not do that. So it seems it's like a child that that is that you know you cannot do what you wanted to do and the child feels well you've just uh, you you're just rejecting me and it's not that he's rejecting him but to bless him in the middle of what he's doing would confirm it and that would be far far worse later on when when you wrote about looking to god you were talking about your church and it had a college ministry and i'm sure it was jam full of activity and all kind yeah. of enthusiasm and excitement but but you wrote about that this ministry was in some ways in vain until finally one day you tried a different approach. Yeah. What was that approach? Well, I had, again, as I searched the scripture, usually through the Gospels, to see the ways of God, uh, I came across uh, John five seventeen, nineteen, and 20, where Jesus was explaining what he did. And it said, uh, my father is always at work. And I'm at work, but the son does not take the initiative, but whatever he sees the father doing, that's what the son does also. But the father loves the son and shares in everything that he's doing. And I, I turned to our college students and I said, my goodness, we're going out to the campus to try and drum up business for God. We need to go out assuming that God's already at work before we get there. Sure. And let's look to see what God is doing. And they said, well, how do I do that? And I said, well, there's some things that only God can do. For instance, the scripture says no one will be drawn to Jesus or come to him except the Father draw him. So I said, this week, why don't you go out and look to see if anybody starts to seek after God or expresses anything that indicates that they're seeking after God. And if you do, then join him immediately. Well, one of the girls came back just excited and said, I've been in a girl with class for two years together. And today afterwards, she said, I think he might be a Christian. Can I talk to you? They went into the cafeteria, and this girl said, 
there's 11 of us who are studying the Bible, but none of us are Christians. Do you know anyone who can help lead us in the Bible study? Well, out of that, immediately, we started four girls' Bible study and ultimately two boys. And I said, you know, we've been trying to start a Bible study in the dorms for a year. We've been trying to beat the doors and drum things up, and all of a sudden it dawned on us, we need to look to see where God's at work and join him. And the moment we did, we started things we'd never ever, and it continued that way until we reached hundreds of college students. You know, Dr. Blackaby, I think for my experience just talking with pastors and people around the country, one of the phrases that out of your book, Experiencing God, that has taken hold with such uh, with such power is the very concept you've just shared with us. Go where God is. Go where he's working. Go yeah, what and, you, and you can tell where he's at work because there's some things that only God can do. Yeah. But in the scripture, whenever God reveals what he's doing, that's an invitation for you to join him. So God came to Moses and said, Moses, let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to about to deliver the children of Israel. And the only reason I'm coming to you is because I want you to join me. But I've had people all over the world say when that was understood, they began to see God everywhere. I mean, everywhere they turned, they saw things happening that only God could do. And it was overwhelming. Them. You know, I was just thinking about a, a pertinent example of that might be like the, the little child, the mother's over there cooking and doing all the stuff, getting ready for dinner, and that's really where the action is, and the and the little child walks over and takes her hand and says, hey, let me show you this anthill over here. Yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. really not where mom's attention should be right at that moment. Yeah. And so often we're almost, we're trying to distract God from what it is he's doing, where it's really happening. Would you come over and help us? And yeah. he said, no, I'm the master and you're the servant. Yeah. And I think Jesus, another verse said, Wherever the master is, there the servant must be also. Well, that's true. And to your new book, The Power of the Call, it, it's, it's such an interesting book. And in the introduction, you, you make a statement that I know pastors listening to us, if they've not already read it, should, but uh, will uh, merit from here even as we speak. It says, God has staked a lot on the lives of pastors and the people they lead. His eternal purposes have been entrusted to pastors to manage his treasure and to respond obediently as he instructs and guides his people on his mission to redeem a lost world. Yeah. Now, uh, you, you may have your own reasons for writing that or of saying that, but let, let me just interject here. Do you think sometimes pastors feel overwhelmed by this responsibility to do all those things out of Exodus 19? Yeah, and they ought to feel overwhelmed. I always stay overwhelmed. Anyone that's involved with God will have a God-sized sense of what they're about. And I think they need to sense that being overwhelmed because it'll always drive them to God. And then in turn, they can let God guide them and carry the load with them. I think one of the things that I had to do was to hear Jesus say, now, if you ever get burdened and heavy laden, you need to come to me and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And I said, Lord, I don't have the faintest idea what it means to take your yoke on me. And I don't know what it means to learn from you when I did. Would you show me? And all of a sudden, God said, I want you to stay overwhelmed because that will bring you to me. And you can link then with me and I will carry the load and I'll guide you in the process. And you'll carry far more than you ever dreamed you could, but it won't be you. It'll be me. I sometimes get criticized because I have not just uh, embraced hook, line, and sinker, all the new paradigm shifts 
that yeah. the church is making. That that may speak of my age <laughs> as much <laughs> as it does of anything. But so often it seems to me that we uh, are in the habit almost of uh, of thinking that we are owners of the church or owners of of the mission or owners of the the word or whatever, and and we've almost got to recreate God and bring Him to to this place that we own, almost like a like a hired hand. But yes. but you say that pastors are not owners of the flock. The the flock is God's, and we need to be reminded of that from time to time. I feel, don't you? Oh, absolutely, we do. And I see the term manager and stewards and servants of God. And we need to always keep that relationship. And to me, it keeps a godly fear in the hearts of those who know they're not owners, but stewards. And therefore, the accountability is there. And that what I handle is not mine, but his. I pastored almost 30 years. And my motto for my life was what Jesus said. This is the will of him that sent me, that of all that he's given me, I should lose none. And that became an absolute with me. But one of the reasons was that the ones God added were his and not mine. And therefore, I need to be an absolute steward that when he comes and asks an accounting, I'd be able to say, Father, of all that you added to this little congregation, we have lost none. And that was what we did. Do you have any opinion on, as Oz Guinness speaks, the modernity of the approach to the world in which the church exists? I just really believe, as I look at the Gospels, that uh, Jesus spent three and a half years trying to get the disciples out of the ways of the world into the ways of the kingdom. Because God's ways are not man's ways, and God's thoughts aren't his thoughts. And you don't do kingdom work with uh, the world's methods. The world does things without reference to God. And if you use the world's methods, you're using that which has no reference to God and usually leaves him out. You may be able to grow a church, but the whole world will never give God credit. I've watched interviews on television when they have uh, sort of profiled large churches, and you can go through the entire interview and never, ever hear the world mention that God has anything to do with it because all they've done is use the world's methods and so the world's methods get credit. But when you come to the scripture, God says, I deliberately will not use the world's methods so that when it happens, it will be profound and the world cannot explain it. But I'm there not to get a job done. I'm there to reveal myself to a watching world. And I'd say be very careful if the world never, ever talks about the God you serve in what you're doing, because that's his purpose. And so, Dr. Blackaby, as we move toward this just a, a little bit, what, what I'm thinking you're saying also is that it may not be the size of the church that is as significant as the health of the church and the church that knows where its power comes from. And, and that is allowing God to express himself in his ways with the magnitude that only God can do so that the world around us will come face to face with God. Yeah. That brings up a point that I think is really relevant as we as we move from that to to the pastor is is this whole idea of guarding our heart. How, how should a pastor go about guarding his heart? I travel the country a lot as you know and I I try to talk about this idea of living above reproach and 
and trying to stay so close to God that the hint of immorality is is, is out of question even, and and that even if people don't like you, they can't find anything bad to say about you. Exactly. Uh, how does a pastor go about safeguarding and, and putting this hedge of protection around his heart? Well, to me, the most powerful way of doing it is always staying very, very close to God. And there was a point, uh, Brother London, where I, I had to say, Father, I want to be crucified with Christ. I want you to take me into that experience. I don't want to just know about it. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't think it was just a figure of speech. I think God took him into that moment and he felt the weight of the sin and knew what Jesus felt when he was crucified. And then I'd say, Lord, would you bring me to that moment where I'm buried with Christ? And I see into the gates of hell, and I see what happened. And then, Lord, would you would you let me be risen with Christ? And then let me reign with Christ. And when I went through that, there was such an awe in my walk with God, it became an incredible deterrent to sin. And I, I just feel... One of the reasons that we don't have a deterrent to sin is that we have lost the fear of God. So when you lose the fear of God, you lose the fear of sin. And when you lose the fear of sin, then you are absolutely open to falling. And I said, oh God, don't ever let me lose the fear of God. It's scary when I think of all the pastors and Christian leaders in this day who do kind of a fast food exercise when it comes to to their relationship with God. What I've just heard you say is that that you can't take a fast food approach oh, no. to deeper walk with the Lord. There, there's got to be those honing times and challenging times and disciplinary times and quiet times and, and all this takes time. And you have to have a deep sense of God's name. The greatest single fear I have is that in any way I would be a reproach on the name of my Lord. And that comes, I think, because of prolonged time with the Lord. In his presence, self cannot remain. Self has got to be laid aside. And Christ has to be the center. And there's nothing I would do that would ever bring reproach on the name of my Lord. But I can lose the cutting edge of that if I'm out there trying to make a name for myself or build a church or grow a church or an organization that I'm so busy that I forget that the name of my Lord is far more important than my name. Last thought. In in your book, and we could have spent the whole interview on this one quote, you made the statement, you are the custodian of the most important information in the world. You're a specialist in what God has to say to people through the Bible. Your divine calling far supersedes all other professions. Your presence and impact has eternal consequences in the world. What you say is in God's name and for his sake. Mm-hmm. Well, it would seem to me, Doc, that it would be good to have a plaque or something on a wall where these words could come rebounding back to us every time we look at them or or think that we're something that we're not, or mm. have some motive that is selfish or, or self-serving. Exactly right. I just want to thank you for that. And and just as we leave our time together, just ask you to enlarge on that, that one paragraph, just 
as you're talking, well, talk to me if you want to, because I'm sure I need it. But as you're talking to thousands of pastors, old and young, going good, going bad, having good times, bad times, in and out, just enlarge on that paragraph just for a moment as we conclude our interview. Well, it, it, it is the most awesome thing to me that the God of the universe would choose my life, both in which to dwell and through which he wanted to express himself, and that he would commit into my hands, as it were, the keys of the kingdom. He would open my mind to the truth of God himself that I could share, that my calling come has come with it, all the resourcing of God. Paul said, don't, we are workers together with God. Don't ever receive the grace of God in vain. And, and I, I say to pastors, there is nothing in all of the world that God has entrusted his resources to that can meet every need of every individual in every situation, like he has his people and the pastor who guides those people. And But I'm watching pastors running to the world and running to counselors. And I'd say, don't run to the world. God entrusted into your hands the greatest resources of heaven to touch the greatest needs of a world. Now immerse yourself in the scriptures, the washing of the water by the word, and, and be immersed in the Lord who called you and the resources that he's given you. And then go out trembling, but with absolute confidence in the power of the Spirit of God to deliver into the hands of a broken world all the resources that God's made available. There is no calling that equals that, none, anywhere. Dr. Blackaby, though we are separated by many, many miles right now, I, I somehow feel that the Holy Spirit has uh, joined our hands and hearts together for, for this interview. And I, oh, I you, feel his presence, and I, I felt his presence in your life as you spoke to us. And I want to thank you for your humble spirit. I, I want to thank you for your, your, your kind of your invitation to us to, to move over to where God is really doing something and to see what would happen when you're in tandem with him where things are happening. And I, I thank you for your writings. I thank you for your, your expression and your ability to articulate the word. But it, as I've spent this time with you, uh, this afternoon in our studios, I, I just want to thank God for your heart that seems so in tune with him and so in line with what he would want you and all of us to say to the people we minister to from day to day and week to week. May God bless you as you continue on and as you balance and juggle and find the time to fit everything into your awesome schedule. Well, thank you. I feel honored just to be able to speak to God's precious servants as a friend. Thank you, sir. Thank you. What a sweet spirit uh, Dr. Blackaby has. Uh, and that, uh, I, th- I think, speaks to the amount of time that he spends with God as he approaches uh, the Almighty. It is inspiring, Mike. And one of the things that he said in the interview that I have uh, quoted often since that time is that he found himself, even with all the success he had been having, hurrying God. Mm-hmm. We all mm-hmm. hurry God. Yeah. And I've tried since this interview to do better at not hurrying God. 